Amen. Amen. Let's eat. Let's eat. Thank you. <clears throat> um, love that. Thank you for that explanation. Man, it really is such a cool privilege that I get to talk to you guys. I get to share with you guys. Um, it's highly intimidating because you all are so amazing. And uh, I don't take that privilege lightly. I, I said this last time I preached, and I want to keep that attitude. Every time I'm up here, the privilege and the honor that it is. And um, I want to start by saying to I'm always going to do my best to communicate truth to you guys, but as you should with any good preacher or teacher, um, always take things back to the Lord in prayer. Always take things back to the Word and, and make sure that that what I'm communicating is right. Don't always take my word for it. Don't always take Lex's word for it. Don't always take any pastor's word for it. Always go check it against the Word. Um, but with that, let's eat. Uh, title of tonight's message is The Privilege of Prayer. Now, as I was preparing for this message this week, I wanted to open with a question. What is prayer? I actually sent this message out to a few friends over the weekend to get an idea of what people think prayer is. And here are some of the answers I got when I asked that question. The first one was, the best way to learn to hear God. I thought that was a pretty good answer. Next one was a way to ask him for things. I'd say that's accurate. Someone else said a way to give our faith structure. As a practice, prayer gives our faith structure. Someone else said praising, glorifying, and speaking to God. Someone else said to simply ask. And probably one of my favorite answers that I got, and probably one of the most common, was that prayer is a conversation with God. We're going to talk about some of the ways that we converse with God in prayer and the different facets of or forms that prayer takes. Point number one tonight is prayer is petition. So most times when we think about prayer, Prayer in the form of petition is often what we think of. We think of prayers like, Lord, help me be more patient, or Holy Spirit, give me wisdom. My favorite one, God, help me find my keys. Gets more common as you get older. While this isn't the only or even the most important form of prayer, it is a pretty significant form of prayer, and it takes a pretty high place in our life, in our prayer life. I'm going to start out in Luke 11, if you guys want to turn to Luke 11, and we're actually going to point back to this scripture quite a bit tonight. Luke 11, if you look at the larger part of the chapter, Luke 11 is what we call the Lord's Prayer. 
the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him to teach them how to pray. And after Jesus lays out the Lord's Prayer, and again, we'll point back to the Lord's Prayer in a couple different parts of tonight's sermon, but the part I want to start with is verse 9 through 10. Verse 9 through 10 says, And I tell you, this is Jesus talking to the disciples, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And when we think about that particular lesson in prayer, when it comes to petitions specifically, we're petitioning the Lord when we ask him, right? Ask and it will be given to you. When you petition the Lord, often he answers back. Seeking, well, could be loosely formed as a petition of sorts. Seek and you will find. You receive something for seeking. And then knocking. Knock and the door will be open to you. When you knock on a door of a house or a room, you expect someone on the other side to answer that petition. You're petitioning that person on the other side of that door for the door to be opened to you. Continuing with the example of the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going to look at Matthew's version because it's fleshed out a little bit more than it is in Luke. But in Matthew, Jesus says, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread. Those two phrases to me are petitions to the Lord. We're petitioning the Lord for his will to be done on earth, for his kingdom to come on earth, right? And the same thing with give us this day our daily bread. We're petitioning the Lord for our provision for the day, whether that's physical or spiritual. That daily bread is something that we continually petition him for. And he answers that by giving us that. We're going to go back to the Old Testament and look at another form of a prayer of petition. We're going to look at a woman named Hannah. Now, Hannah is often known for the fact that she couldn't have children. And a little context for that time, in that particular time in history, children were seen, and still are seen, right, as a form of blessing in the family unit. And for a woman to not be able to have kids, it brought a lot of shame, a lot of internal and external shame. Hannah was part of a family unit where her husband, who's named Elkanah, is also married to another woman named Peninnah. Kind of a dicey situation there. Peninnah was not like Hannah. Peninnah could have children. She had many children. And Peninnah liked to rub that in Hannah's face. So year after year, when they would go up to Shiloh to offer sacrifices and worship, and they were granted portions based on the size of their family, because that's usually how portions were given out in that situation. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Again, go check that against the word. It was one more reminder to Hannah the fact that she didn't have as many portions as Peninnah, that she couldn't have children. So that blessing felt like it was being withheld. 
Hannah kind of being at the end of herself one year when they go up and pray and uh, worship and offer sacrifices in Shiloh. She comes to the end of herself. She's so distressed by the fact that she can't grow her family, that she can't bring her family blessing by having children. She has a deep, deeply bitter moment with the Lord. 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 11 says, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life and the razor shall touch his head. This prayer that Hannah prays is a prayer of petition. She's desperate, she's sorrowful, and she petitions the Lord for a son. So she, in this situation, is willing to completely give up if the Lord would just grant her the ability to have children. Later, she says, after she conceives her son Samuel, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Prayer as petition is our opportunity to ask God as our Father for what we need or what burdens us. The Lord, as a good Father, often grants those petitions within his will, right? Not everything that we ask or petition the Lord for will be answered with a yes, but if it's in the Lord's will, he grants those petitions. As children of the Most High God, we have full ability to go before the Lord with our needs, with hope and certainty that he will answer those prayers. So that is prayer as petition. Next form of prayer I want to look at is prayer as intercession. What does it mean to intercede? To intercede means to intervene or to ask on behalf of someone else, right? For us here on earth, intercession often looks like asking God for healing, especially for others. James actually tells us in James 5.14, If anyone is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Jesus intercedes for us quite often, not only as being on the right hand at the throne of God, but... He interceded often on earth while he was doing his ministry too. John 17, there's a big prayer, big long prayer of intercession that Jesus prays to the Father before being betrayed in the garden. He says, while I was with them, this is Jesus talking to the Father, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Talking about Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus understood that when he left the earth, and even before he left the earth, the disciples would face a lot of persecution. And so before going to the cross, he intercedes for them to the Father to say, keep them. Keep them from the evil ones. Sanctify them in your truth. Keep them in your truth. Knowing that he wouldn't be there to help them, but the Holy Spirit would be coming to help them too. Going back to the Old Testament for a minute, we have a couple other intercessory prayers that we see. Abraham, when he is getting ready to see the destruction of Sodom, intercedes for the city of Sodom, saying, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people, spare the city. Now the Lord clearly looks at Sodom and says, no, there's not 50 righteous people in this city. So Abraham intercedes again and says, well, Lord, if there are 45 righteous in the city, will you not save it? The Lord says, okay, if there are 45 righteous in the city, I will save the city. The Lord doesn't find 45 righteous in the city. Abraham continues this intercession over and over and over again. And that's a lot of times what intercession looks like, especially today too. But he intercedes over and over and over again to the Lord for Sodom and says, Lord, if there are 10 righteous people in the city, will you not spare it? We all know what happens. The Lord does not find 10 righteous people in Sodom. Abraham ends up having to rescue Lot from the city of Sodom and get out of Dodge so that, you know, they don't get destroyed along with the rest of Sodom. But we see that example of Abraham pleading over and over with, with the Lord for the people in the city of Sodom. Save the city if you find righteous there, right? Moses does something similar. He intercedes for the Israelites when he's up on the mountain. And down at the base of the mountain, you have the Israelites waiting very impatiently for Moses to come back down with news from the Lord. And because they got so impatient, they end up building a golden calf. Like you do, yeah. You know. The Lord sees this and tells Moses, this is what the people have done in your absence. The Lord is rightfully wrathful because of the golden calf that the Israelites are worshiping at the base of the mountain. But Moses goes back to the Lord and it says, he implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore, <clears throat> to whom you swore by your own self, sorry, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and all this land that I have promised, I will give your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. As a result 
of Moses interceding for the people of Israel, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. There's a value in intercession as prayer. There's value in coming to the Lord, pleading on behalf of other people. Going back to the New Testament, Paul actually intercedes quite a bit for the churches that he writes his letters to. For the Ephesians, he said this, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He says something similar to the Philippians. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, fulfilled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And again to the Colossians, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul, knowing that the churches are possibly struggling in some areas, girls group are reading through 1 Corinthians right now, and Corinthians were rough, man. He recognizes that they need some intercession, right? They need the power of the Holy Spirit to help strengthen what the growing church needs grow them in wisdom, grow them in knowledge, increase their love that it may abound more and more, right? So prayer, So Paul is in constant prayer for the different churches after visiting them and after, um, you know, planting the seeds of the gospel with them, right? There's a different type of intercession that is also important to look at. And the two examples of this intercession that we're gonna look at are Stephen and Jesus. Stephen, if you don't know who he is, was a follower of Christ in the early church. Stephen was also known as the first martyr. Stephen was in Jerusalem preaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel with all power and might. And through that, Stephen angered some people. He was preaching in a particular synagogue, and the word says that he preached with all boldness. What does it say? 
He's preaching in the synagogue and it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. The Holy Spirit had come on Stephen so powerfully that the Jews who had just not quite been open enough to the gospel of Christ couldn't stand what he was saying. It irritated them so badly that they challenged him. And after challenging Stephen, they end up taking him out into the street and stoning him. Right before he was stoned, <clears throat> Stephen says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in the heart and, and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen is challenging these people who just crucified Jesus, and they're not happy about it. They physically can't stand the fact that Stephen is challenging them in this event that just happened. It says later in Acts 7, now when they heard, they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we later know as Paul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Intercession is not always easy. When Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that had to have been hard to hear. It's hard to hear today. But how much harder is it in that moment when you are literally at death's door to say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them? That, to me, speaks true intercession as prayer. Stephen had a great example, though, in Jesus. Jesus, as he's being crucified, cries out and says, Lord, forgive them, for they are not what they do. He's watching the people down below him who have tortured him, who have smeared his name, who have humiliated him and says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. When we look at prayer as, an, as intercession, don't only consider the healing prayers that we pray for other people, the impartation of wisdom for other people, the impartation of peace, knowledge, 
consider the moments where it's hardest to pray, that prayer of intercession. God forbid you're ever in a position where you're being martyred for your faith, but looking at that as the true example of intercession sets that in a different perspective. Shifting gears a little bit, point number three, prayer is worship. When we look at prayer as worship, this can actually look like a few different things. When I think of prayer as worship, I also think of praise, thanksgiving. And worship is often how we should be starting our prayers. Starting our prayers glorifying God and recognizing him for who he is gives us a different heart posture. In Hannah's prayer that we looked at earlier, she starts out her prayer, O Lord of hosts. She's recognizing God as, as the God who fights for her, as a military God, the Lord of heaven's armies, right? But there's worship in that, recognizing him rightly for who he is, recognizing who he is before offering up her petition. Jesus gives us an example of this in the Lord's Prayer too, right? The beginning of the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray, and this is Luke 11's version, it says, Father, hallowed be your name. In Matthew, it says, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. It puts the Lord in a right position before us and gives him the honor and the worship and the praise that he's due before offering up whatever else we are offering up in that moment, whether it's the petition or the intercession. Hannah starts out her prayer of petition with worship, but later on when her petitions are fulfilled, she prays again and we see this long prayer of praise to the Lord. She starts out by saying, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like you, Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let arrogance come from your mouth. Let not arrogance let not arrogance come from your mouth. Whoops. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So she starts out this prayer of thanksgiving by, again, exalting the Lord to his right place, calling him holy, rejoicing in his salvation, declaring that he is her rock. It changes our perspective when we go to the rest of our prayer. Mary actually follows a similar pattern in her prayer of worship after getting visited by the angel when she's with her cousin Elizabeth. 
Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, sometimes we don't always view these things as prayer, but we see it a lot in the Psalms too. We see an exaltation of the Lord, whether it's exalting him directly or declaring it to others. That still looks like prayer to me, and so I'll call that prayer. Moses also exalts the Lord right after they cross the Red Sea. Exodus 15, it says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength and your holy abode. So Moses is putting the Lord in his right place, giving thanks for what he's done, right? He's just led him away from Egypt, across the Red Sea. He's drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea, saving them from their, from their wrath. And the Lord rightly, or Moses rightly recognizes the Lord in his place as holy and mighty and glorious. And any time we directly address the Lord like that, that is prayer and worship. Worship in prayer, excuse me. Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Sorry, guys, my throat's been sore all week, so I'm struggling a little bit. Um, Psalm 29, 1 through 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalm 104, 1 through 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Anytime we're addressing the Lord, that's prayer. Point number four, prayer is an intimate conversation. At its core, prayer is the ongoing, intimate, back and forth conversation with the God of the universe. When we look back at the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon, what is prayer? None of these things were incorrect. None of the answers that I got were incorrect, but they were incomplete. Yes, prayer is praising and glorifying and speaking to God, 
Yes, prayer is asking, petitioning the Lord. Yes, it's a way to give our faith structure. Yes, it's a way for us to ask him for things. It is the best way to learn to hear God other than reading your word. But I think the thing that we forget often is that prayer is a conversation. Prayer is not just us lobbing all of these requests at the Lord, right? Prayer isn't even just worshiping the Lord. Although it's an important piece, it's not the only piece. How often when you pray, do you sit and listen? How often do you take five minutes after you've prayed, while you're praying, to just sit and listen to see how the Lord responds? In any good and healthy relationship that we have here on earth, there is conversation. In your closest relationships, you talk about fears, you talk about deep desires, you talk about your struggles, you talk, talk about your greatest victories, but you also listen. It's important to have those conversations with the people around us, right? How much more important, though, is it for us to have those conversations with the Lord? Not only to tell him these things that grieve us or that excite us or that we may need in certain moments, but to really listen and hear from the Lord and understand how he responds to those things. I think David is one of the greatest examples of this intimacy in conversation. And we see the results of that intimacy in his Psalms. We don't see directly what the Lord's response is to David and a lot of those things, but David spent a lot of time out in the wilderness looking after sheep, right? He had a lot of conversations with the Lord. And the result of those conversations are what we see in the Psalms. But there's an intimacy that you see when you read through the Psalms. You see the learned behavior that David has of understanding who the Lord is in response to what he's, what he's saying, what he's praying. You see psalms of praise, glorifying the Lord. You see psalms of desperation in times of need. You see psalms of repentance, crying out to the Lord. But it's a conversation. David has learned to hear the Lord and understand him rightly, to know who he is. How boring is a relationship where all you do is talk and you don't actually hear from or learn about the other person in the process. The Lord is no different. Prayer has to be an ongoing conversation that we have with the Lord. The scriptures say to rejoice always and pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Praying without ceasing is not you talking to the Lord all day long. <laughs> Get kind of boring to hear your own voice all day long, right? Get kind of tired of your own voice, I'm sure. So you have to take time. <laughs> yeah, you Benji. <laughs> you don't get tired of hearing yourself talk, do you? 
But praying without ceasing doesn't just mean talking to the Lord all day long. There's response. There's time to listen in that, right? Giving thanks to the Lord in between petitions, in between intercession, but also listening. The title of my message tonight was The Privilege of Prayer. So I'll close with this. The biggest thing to remember about all of these different facets of prayer that we talked about tonight is that prayer is a privilege. We have the ability and responsibility and the honor of being in deep relationship with the creator of all things with the King of Kings, who is not only the creator of the universe and the King of Kings, but is a God who calls us friend. There is a reverence that we hold, yes, a healthy reverence and fear of the Lord because he is God after all. But because he calls us friend, we have the ability to boldly approach the throne of grace like Lex talked about last week. And our prayers are no different. We have the ability to boldly pray prayers that might seem scary sometimes. They might seem a little too bold to bring before the throne of God, right? but we're in a unique position with full access to the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord who fights for us, a God that created us for that deep relationship with him. Prayer and the ability to converse with God is a privilege, a privilege that we should not take lightly, that we should take advantage of often, not only to talk, but to hear. To listen. I don't at all take credit for how I'm closing this message. One of my favorite messages by Jackie Hill Perry. She ends with reading a hymn that I think we gloss over quite a bit that I love. It's what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. God, we love you. We honor you, Lord, and we thank you for the privilege it is to bring everything to you in prayer. Every petition, every intercession, every word of praise and thanksgiving and worship, and every moment we have to listen to your response, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you want to be in relationship with us 
and you have given us a way to do that through Jesus. Remind us, Lord, what it is to come to you in prayer. We love you, Lord, and we honor that privilege we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.